Our reading this morning is by the Reverend Jason Shelton, minister of First Nashville Unitarian Universalist Church and composer from his address in June at our General Assembly. Sometimes we build a barrier to keep love tightly bound. Sometimes our words themselves are the barriers. The metaphors we use for the work of justice matter. If we are called to be in this work together, then we have to understand when our words become barriers to full participation. What does love call us to do? For some, it's standing on the side of love. For some, standing is not an option. And the continued use of that metaphor is a painful reminder of the barriers to full inclusion of people with disabilities in our congregations and at our general assemblies. What is my responsibility as an artist when awareness of this pain comes to my consciousness? I am clear that the SSL metaphor, as I intended it, had nothing to do with the physical act of standing. It's about aligning ourselves with what love calls us to do. But I am also clear that intent is not the same thing as impact, and the impact of this metaphor has become a barrier for some among us. Friends, when love calls, it sometimes asks us to let go of our attachments and maybe even our t-shirts. I'm not sure what to do about those t-shirts, but I do know that love is calling us to a new and deeper awareness, and I can do something about the song that I wrote. Thank you. Answering the Call of Love. Now, my original title was 1967 to 2017, 50 years from the summer of love to answering the call of love. But boy, that's way too long of a title. So <laughs> here we are with answering the call of love. None of us fully knows how we have been formed. Many influences shape our spirits as they are developing and our lives as they unwind. The summer of love affected almost everyone who lived through that era. And this most certainly included me, even though I never considered going to San Francisco or to wear some flowers in my hair. I did have hair then. I did, I, I, a Today Magazine article says, the summer of love was about a mindset which lingers today in both the idealistic 20-somethings of 1967, who are now wistful 60-somethings, and in the heirs to that revolution of thinking and behavior. The summer of love continues, fresh flowers and all. Now we can look back at that time or we can dip into the lived experiences of people who were there during that time. The Reverend Paul Sawyer, a UU minister in Los Angeles area, was closely connected to the scene in San Francisco. His Los Angeles Times obituary from July 12 of 2010 says, Paul Sawyer, dies at 75. 
Unitarian Universalist minister, peace and social justice activist, a leader in scores of nonviolent civil actions against war, nuclear power, and the death penalty. On one of the many times he was arrested, he lost count around 60. A time when he was caught blocking the gates at San Quentin Prison, Sawyer said, we'd be out here whether he was guilty or innocent because it is wrong to take another human life. Such was the Reverend Paul Sawyer. And in a way, he sounds like many Unitarian Universalists. Have any of you, yes you have, some of you I know, protested against war or nuclear power or the death penalty? Hands? Yes. Those were his issues. Reads the obit. Paul Sawyer was a lion, a poet, and an activist, probably one of the most dedicated people for making the world a better place, better than anyone I ever knew, said 60s icon Wavy Gravy, a longtime friend who was often arrested with Reverend Sawyer at San Quentin. As Susan Sawyer told the L.A. Times, her husband did not become part of the ongoing prankster's troop, but often traveled in their bus, including going to Woodstock in 1969 on the bus. Paul Sawyer was on the bus, and Paul remained good friends with Ken Kesey until his death in 2001. If we go back to 1966, and the time jumps around a little bit today, back in 1966, many Unitarian Universalists in the California area wanted to learn more about the countercultural focus on peace and love that was blooming in San Francisco. And so they invited Ken Kesey, author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Wavy Gravy, the leader of the Merry Pranksters, to the California UU Conference at Asilomar State Beach in February of 1966. And I heard something of this story at the Conference for Unitarian Universalist Ministers. I heard that people came down from San Francisco to sit down and engage in dialogues with Unitarian Universalists, dialogues in which the state of the world, the hopes and dreams of the people who were sitting around the table, all of the things that we often discuss around our tables in Unitarian churches, were discussed with Ken Kesey, Wavy Gravy, the Merry Pranksters, the Grateful Dead. All were there on that scene in Asilomar. Some of you have seen me wearing my Asilomar fleece. I'm glad I had it. I didn't use it much in New Orleans, but I think I will <laughs> be wearing it a little more around here. 
Um, you know, but I was looking uh, through all of this, and I was just wondering a little bit about this whole story that I heard at that time, and, and what, I went exactly what had happened, and then I came across Paul Sawyer's obituary, and the story begins to unfold a little bit. There was a connection at that time. It was a very interesting connection. It was a simpatico that was developed in that room between people who took two quite different trains. As a matter of fact, one of the trains was cut a little bit short because there were a certain number of Unitarian Universalists who were not too impressed by the security brought along by those who came down from San Francisco. Yes, some of our Unitarian Universalists were not too comfortable rubbing elbows with the Hell's Angels. And so I began to wonder to myself, why did the summer of love come to such an abrupt end? Where did it go in 1968? What happened to free this, free that, and free the other thing? I would have liked a few of those free things. How could the movement unravel even as its ideas began to take hold? I suspect, and this is just my suspicion, that the movement went too far too fast. Predators lingered around the edges, people who took advantage. And some people were burned. Some people felt like they were hurt. And once burned, they paid closer attention to themselves. They centered more internally on their own needs. And of course, some too were lost, lost to the streets, lost to poverty. Some lost to addiction. Some lost their lives. Yet the ideals, my friends, put forward during the summer of love changed the world. Social attitudes shifted, occurring against a backdrop of women's rights movement, civil rights protests, and peace rallies. Now, I may hold a prejudice here because I garnered my high school diploma in 1967. Someone did give it to me. And yet I believe Today Magazine got it right. The Summer of Love was about a mindset which lingers today. And this is where I suspect the UU brush up against the Summer of Love had an effect on the direction many Unitarian Universalists would follow. I recall how I was changed and the people around me were changed in the aftermath of the Summer of Love. But we can also step into our UU history and if we, jumping in the calendar to 1984, the year our General Assembly voted in our seven principles, we can see that its second principle, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, the one that moved me deeply when I first read it, that drew me to this faith, was penned five years after one of Eugene Pickett's reflections on the problems facing our denomination. Yes, we have had problems in the past. Pickett, our president at that time, noted that his predecessor had died after less than two years in office. And then he said, the deeper malaise lies in our confusion as to what word we have to spread. 
the old watchwords of liberalism, freedom, reason, and tolerance, worthy though they may be, let me repeat that, worthy though they may be, are simply not catching the imagination of the contemporary world. This was 1979 when he wrote this. They describe a process for approaching the religious depths, but freedom, reason, and tolerance testify to no intimate acquaintance with the depths themselves. If we are ever to speak to a new age, we must supplement our seeking with some profound religious finds. A new age, he said. A new age? Well, we look back, my good you-you friends, and looking back, it takes just a second to see that we are in a new age. It may not be the age picket foresaw in 79, but it is quite simply and completely the age we are in. We are living in the age we are in. Couldn't be more simple than that. Now, Pickett was UU president when the Unitarian Universalist Women's Federation was searching for justice. And these women, our women, wanted justice for themselves. Their protest was against the male-oriented language commonly used in UU circles, like mankind's inclusion in the original purposes from 1960, and the phrase, love to God, love to man. In their view, these words had no meaning. No meaning at all, said UUWF President Natalie Gobrinson. They do not respect us as women. And shouldn't humankind or human beings include women? Powerful question. Pickett replied, you are changing the situation of women within our denomination. And in so doing, you are opening up for all of us new ways of understanding and perceiving women, and we hope men as well. And so, my friends, the 70s and the 80s gifted us with a subtle and gradual softening of our language. Our words became more kindly than they were before. Our search for more appropriate religious words stepped onward. We reconnected with our universalist tradition. We heightened our sense of compassion, equity, and justice. Thanks to the UUWF, in large part, we turned from freedom, reason, and tolerance toward love. Love. And this was, in the hopes of many, a very special kind of love we sought. It is a love that draws others over to love for the sake of loving. 
a love that whirls around in this great and perplexing spin of life and returns carrying in its arms the spirit of love and the spirit of being loved as well. Now, I have mentioned the story that will follow to some of you, but certainly not all of you. Several years ago, I sat in a service. It was led by a Unitarian Universalist colleague. And that minister referred to the community in which I was sitting as a beloved community. Let me tell you, I was distressed when I first heard those words. It bothered me. I recalled a beloved community being mentioned by Martin Luther King Jr. And I was a bit squeamish about adopting his phrase in the UU community in which I was seated. Could we do that? I wondered. Could we become a beloved community? Could we? I was skeptical. Ah, skepticism, yes. It's a part of us, isn't it? I was skeptical about this becoming beloved, especially as I thought, isn't this copying an expression from MLK? Can we do that? But then the aha moment came. Not immediately, but it came to me. Our congregations are filled with people who like to be loved. Oh, some might say appreciated or, or liked, but if you strip away the pretense, what this really is, is a desire to feel the presence of love. And there are places, there are churches where this happens. A 2000 UU World article, one which I have drawn from today, Reminds us of the First Unitarian Church of Waterloo, Ontario, where their congregational life is focused on our principles. Their minister, the Reverend Ann Treadwell, said, the responsibilities of membership can be summed up as a thoughtful commitment to the principles. And making such a commitment can change lives. Can change lives. Now, such a sense of belovedness resides in many UU churches. And you, my friends, have testified to me in the conversations we have had of its presence here. Yet, I must remind you that it takes a process to reestablish its presence if it is lost. It will not and cannot happen with a snap of the fingers. There are moves to make, steps to follow, and it may take some time to reach the other shore. You know, there may be someone here who carries a certain type of hurt within them. It could be you. It could be someone you know. The first move is to consider whether there might be anything you can do to help to relieve this pain, to help someone along the path of healing. You see, love is not just the receiving of love. Love is also what we are able to give to others. 
Today's invitation is to take the first step and then go on to lean steadily toward a greater love and a greater sense of belovedness here in this congregation. I close with an example of how that journey has, toward belovedness has led to the alteration of the words to one of our favorite songs. Very recently, on September 6, the Reverend Jason Shelton shared these words on Facebook. I'll admit to being surprised. Okay, maybe not surprised, but disappointed for sure to the negative reactions I've received about this change in this song. So let me try to break it down as simply as I can. I didn't write this song to be about standing. I wrote it about love and specifically the push for marriage equality. But intent does not equal impact. Given the need to lessen the unforeseen impact of his first choice of words, Shelton informs his readers, if standing on the side of love is about public acts of witness, and those actions are not accessible to all of us, then standing on the side of love is no longer a metaphor that speaks to for all of us as people of faith. Though its original intent had nothing to do with accessibility, its impact has become a painful reminder of the ways ableism has diminished our capacity to witness together. Once I finally understood all the above, I felt it a matter of conscience to act in a way that was responsive to the pain that has become associated with my song. I can't change the t-shirts, but I can do this. In the end, answering the call of love is a better metaphor. It's about responding to what love calls us to do, and we can't know what that will be from the start. In the end, answering the call of love is a better metaphor. It's about responding to what love calls us to do. And we can't know what that will be from the start. We may not always like where love takes us or what love asks us to do, but still we must answer the call. What's more, making this change, both for me, said Jason Shelton, and for our congregations that sing it, is a concrete way of answering love's call. Shelton did not know, nor can any of us fully know, the formative forces in our life. But we can recognize that some of the forces that we carry with us are of our own making. And that is the invitation today. On this theme word-focused invitation in the month of September in a message on relationships and using 
relationships proactively. That is the invitation today to participate in reshaping and revising the forces within you. Yes, just you. As we pray that just others are doing it too. And then leaning toward a greater sense of belovedness in your homes, in your lives, and here at North Lake, you, you. May the love in your heart find love in the hearts of those around you. Amen, ashe, shalom, salam, namaste.